very much for this day, opportunity to gather as a body of believers on the Lord's Day to worship, to sing, to commune, to eat at the table, to hear the word rightly divided. Be with us, Lord, today. May we be mindful of your presence, of one another, and of giving you the glory in all that we do and say. Amen. All right, so before I get started with my lesson formally, uh, Pastor Booth would like for me to announce a new book that is now on our bookshelves. It is for sale back there. It is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. So I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Butterfield speak at the 2023 ACCS conference in Pittsburgh. And for her plenary note that she gave, she read from the first chapter of this very book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And she holds back no punches. She is bold. She is direct in attacking. Well, I'll just go ahead and read here from the inside sleeve to give you an idea of what the book is about. In Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, Rosaria Butterfield confronts five dangerous beliefs about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, and modesty. Exploring her personal battle with these lies, she draws on the riches of Christian theology, cultural studies, and literary criticism to help readers preserve godly values around womanhood, marriage, and motherhood. And like I was telling uh, Pastor Booth, uh, Dr. Butterfield, <laughs> who is a woman, is I find her to be far more courageous than many men who are speaking about the same kind of issues in the Christian space. So I haven't read this book completely yet, but I do know what it's about, and I've heard Dr. Butterfield speak about it. So with that being said, this would not be a waste of your time. It would be worth it uh, to read what Dr. Butterfield has to say about those issues. All right, so let's go ahead and get started with today's lessons. So have you seen these signs around town? They're all over the place concentrated in some locations more than others. Love is love, the signs read. Alongside a number of other pithy one-liners designed to stir your emotions for whatever cause du jour progressives have attached themselves to. In Nacogdoches, many of these signs are found on and around the neighborhood of Reggae, which is just where a not-so-insignificant number of SFA professors happen to live, and I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Uh, These signs include some other misguided maxims, such as women's rights are human rights, which is little more than slang for leave me alone while I murder my baby, and other maxims such as Black Lives Matter, which sounds noble on the surface, sounds like something that any decent person would agree with, But in reality, what it means is if you do not support the organization Black Lives Matter and all that they stand for, you are literally Hitler or the Klan. But lest I get carried away, I want to focus on the subject of love, which is the primary topic of today's lesson and the lesson that I'll be given next week as well. So sitting in these very pews, perhaps even right next to you, are a number of current and former Regents Academy students who, I don't know, maybe they'll say it was a blessing or a curse, had myself or Pastor Bradley as their logic teacher. And any one of these students should be able to tell you right away what is wrong with defining love as love. To define a term by its 
self, by the term itself, is to commit the error of a circular definition. A circular definition explains nothing, defines nothing, teaches nothing, illuminates nothing. Now, I know, and I'm sure many of you know, what is meant when people of a particular ideology or persuasion use the statement, use the terms, love is love. Those who propose such dribble typically mean fornication, homosexuality, polyamory, transgenderism, or any other sexual expression completely and strictly condemned by the scriptures and decent cultures anywhere, that these expressions are to be accepted, if not praised, as true, good, and beautiful. It reminds me of Orwell's novel, 1984. So Winston Smith, the protagonist of 1984, becomes a revolutionary and a subverter of the government, of the totalitarian government under which he finds himself, colloquially known in the book as Big Brother. And in the midst of Winston's attempts to subvert this government, he eventually gets caught. And when he gets caught, it's not enough that Winston stops attempting to subvert Big Brother. It's not enough that Winston even openly proclaims a love for Big Brother. No, Winston must mean it. When Winston says, I love Big Brother, it's not enough for the words to be spoken. He must mean it in the very core of his being that he loves Big Brother. He loves the totalitarian oppression that he is other that he is under. And how does the book end? with probably one of the saddest ending lines in all of literature. And he loved Big Brother. Big Brother tortured Winston into a literal, actual love for that totalitarian regime. And similarly, our world, and I'll define what I mean by the word world, because that's a word that's bandied about, oh, the world, the world believes this, the world says this. I want to try to put a little bit of meat on the bones of what I mean by world. But our world wants to do the same with sexual expression. It's not enough to say live and let live. That's so 1990s. It's not enough to say live and let live. It's not even enough to give your kind of tacit approval to it. You must rally behind it. You must cheer for it. You must march in the pride parades. You must teach your children that this is a good and normal, perfectly fine expression of human sexuality. And that that is what love is. That love is that. That's what it wants you to do. Now, I don't really have any need to convince you of these realities. We are blessed to sit under the wise and godly teaching of capable pastors and capable elders who are very much like the sons of Issachar. They know what time it is. One of the big reasons why I brought my family to this church is because this church knew what time it was. During the summer of 2020, when it seemed like everybody had lost their minds, this church did not. And it was obvious to me and my family, and it was a big reason why, We are here today. When it comes to the subject of love, Christians need biblical direction for navigating a world that has exchanged the truth about love for a self-serving lie. Our world, and here's what I mean when I say the world, 
And I'll hearken back to this a number of times in today's lesson. What I mean by the world is the systems, the institutions, and the principalities that are set in opposition to God and his world. His word, excuse me. That world tells us that love is predicated upon what you feel in your heart and like will, what any good Disney movie will tell you, you must follow your heart. The Bible, on the other hand, tells us that our hearts are sick, they are untrustworthy, that we have untold numbers of wicked thoughts within us, and that love is actually predicated on obedience, faithfulness, and service. Let me repeat that. Our world tells us love is predicated on what you feel in your heart and that you must follow that heart. The Bible says, no, your heart is sick, your heart is untrustworthy, and love has to be predicated on a different standard other than the one found inside of yourself and your own feelings. It's got to be predicated on obedience, on service, and on faithfulness. So God gives us clarity on the topic of love all throughout the scriptures, what love is, what it means to love. Uh, today, First John is going to be our guide. It's going to be our guide this week and next week, spending some time in First John to see what that particular book and some scriptures that support what John writes in that epistle, what that letter has to say about love. Specifically, I want to look at three aspects of love over the next two weeks. Number one, that love is faithfulness to God. Love, what is love? Love isn't love. Love isn't what we feel in our heart. Number one, love is faithfulness to God. Number two, love is obedience to the commands of God. And number three, love is a special affection for the brethren, a special affection for one another, for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This week, today's time is going to be dedicated to talking about how love is faithfulness to God and then next week, look more specifically about love being obedience to God's commandments and love being a special affection that we have as Christians for one another. So, love is faithfulness to God. The first passage from 1 John that I want to look at is found in chapter 2. So, 1 John, if you would like to follow along in your Bibles, chapter 2, starting at verse 15. 1 John, chapter 2, starting at verse 15. So here's what the disciple whom Jesus loved has to write in this section of his epistle. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So if love is faithfulness to God, then naturally that means do not love the world. And again, do not love the systems, the institutions, and the principalities that are set up in opposition to God and to his word. You cannot love those things and also have the love of the Father abiding within you. They are antithetical. Logic students, imagine it's like a genus and species chart on two different branches of the genus and species chart. The two things are irreconcilable. They don't belong on the same level. For the rest of you, I apologize. For my students, we just shared a wonderful moment together. They're 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 contradictory things. They're inconsistent with one another. Love of the world and the love of the Father being present within a Christian. You can't have both. Now, sure, you can play the game. 
You can try to have one toe in the world, one toe in the kingdom. You can try to straddle the line between the two and attempt to play the game where you love one and love the other. But eventually, one or the other is going to win out. Eventually, one of those things is going to win your allegiance. It's either going to be the world, it's either going to be those systems and those institutions set up in opposition to God, or it's going to be your faithfulness to God. One of those things is going to win out in the end. And this is echoed in many things that Christ has to say, but one that jumped to my mind was in Matthew chapter 6. So smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon. Some translations for mammon is wealth or money. You might want to think of it as you can't serve God and material possessions. But if you were to just insert the world for mammon, you get the same idea. John is echoing what his king and his savior taught him. He's echoing that in his epistle. Jesus is saying you can't serve both. You're either going to love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the one. You can't do both of those things. Jesus obviously recognizes this reality. John picks up on this reality in his epistle as well. When he talks about not loving the world, you can't do it. eventually, you're going to land on one side. And if you want to make sure you're landing on the side of faithfulness to God, then you cannot have love. You cannot have that sort of faithful affection for the things in this world that are set up in opposition to God. And Paul explains this and has a similar thing to say in the book of Galatians. So in the book of Galatians, uh, I mean, of course, Paul's blunt, but a blunt guy, he's at his bluntest is that a word he's at his most blunt in galatians he says that paul says that in galatians 1 chapter 1 verse 10 he says if i sought to please men i wouldn't be christ's servant now what's the context of this proclamation made by paul look if i was a man pleaser i wouldn't be a christ pleaser i wouldn't attempt to serve christ if i'm trying to serve and please man so within the context of the book of galatians is paul's dealing with a heresy the Christians in the region of Galatia, there were some men who were called Judaizers, came to this region. And what they were teaching was that to be a Christian, you not only had to follow Christ, you not only had to swear your allegiance to him, but you also had to follow specific instructions from the Mosaic Code. They said you also specifically had to be circumcised. So it wasn't faith in Christ alone. It wasn't the doctrine of justification by faith. For these Judaizers, it was faith in Christ plus circumcision. So they added a work to the grace that we receive from Christ. They added works on top of the gospel. And Paul, in no uncertain terms, says, this gospel that you are now beginning to fall for is not even a real gospel. And Paul further says, if I were to come to you and preach this message of Jesus plus circumcision, if I were to come, or if an angel from God himself were to come, you need to look at me, you need to look at that angel, and you need to say anathema, that you are cursed for bringing that kind of a message into the body of believers. So Paul recognized the same sort of reality that John recognized. Paul was recognizing, and this is going to be a recurring theme today as well, the syncretism, this syncretizing of Christianity and faithful Orthodox Christianity with something else. And when you attempt to syncretize, when you attempt to merge together Christianity with something else, you're left with effectively some form of non-Christianity. You're left with either remaining faithful to the truth 
or attempting to syncretize with something from the world in which you then lack faithfulness to God. So Paul recognized this, Christ recognized this, and John is picking up on this as well and is warning his readers to not love the world lest you go down this road where you abandon the faith. And like I said previously, you cannot stay committed to both for long. Jesus says you can't stay committed to a love of money and a love and a service to God. Eventually, one's going to win your allegiance. Paul is saying, if you want to be a man pleaser, you're going to eventually not care about pleasing Christ. You're going to be more caught up in pleasing men. And John is saying, you cannot love the world. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And John further says in these verses that you're putting, essentially he says, you're putting your faith in something that's fading away rather than in the thing, in God, that's going to last and sustain forever. So put your love and your faithfulness in that which is eternal, rather than that which is temporal and is eventually going to fade away. So the next passage from uh, 1 John I'd like to look at is 1 John chapter 4. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4, and then I'm going to zoom in on a, a few of them. So 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who lives in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So 1 John 4, 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the, wor- and the world hears them. Two really important things there to focus on. They speak like the world, they speak like the systems, the institutions, the principalities set up against God, and those systems set up against God and his word listen to them. Now, who are these people? Well, in the context of chapter 4, John is referring to false prophets and false teachers. People who once looked like, sounded like, seemed like they were part of the body of believers. Like they were orthodox leaders who were leading Christians down the right path. But eventually, they began to speak like the world. And the world began to listen to and like what they were hearing from these false teachers. And John says, that is evidence of their false teaching. Now, specifically within the context of John, he's talking about an early Gnostic heresy. So he says that you know that someone is from or has the spirit of God if they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That may sound odd to us. Why is that important? Well, one of the heresies of Gnosticism, which was a a Greek uh, ideology, a Greek belief system, was that anything spirit was good. Anything physical was bad. So again, you have syncretism. You have Christianity 
and Gnosticism attempting to syncretize. And what happens when that takes place? You have Christian Gnostics who want to import their Gnosticism into Christianity, and what ends up happening is they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. To a Gnostic Christian, it's anathema that Jesus would come in the flesh because the flesh is bad. The physical is bad. Only the spiritual is good. Well, if Jesus never came in the flesh, I mean, that, I mean, you just take that thread and pull, and practically all of Christianity becomes unraveled if the incarnation of Christ wasn't an incarnate reality. We have serious problems with our faith if that never happened. And John is warning his hearers of this letter, do not fall for this. You know truth if they say Christ came in the flesh. You know falsehood if they deny that Christ came in the flesh. Now, the application for us, though, reaches beyond Gnosticism. We can have some practical applications for ourselves. So here's one that I thought of. Our digital capabilities, the digital revolution in which we live in the midst of, have brought men and women from all over the world into our homes, into our lives, <laughs> into our ears, into our hearts. It is common, and I'm not suggesting this is necessarily bad, but it is very common for us Christians to have favorite preachers, teachers, podcasters, YouTubers, Instagram influencers, and the like, authors as well, article and blog writers. We just know generally of big-name men and women within American Christianity, and many of them we rightfully enjoy. We consume their platforms. We listen to their teachings, their podcasts, their YouTube videos. We read their books, right? I mean, obviously... If we, if we had some sort of a huge issue with doing any of that, we wouldn't be saying, read Rosaria's book. There's a book of, there's books of Doug Wilson's and Peter Lightheart's back there. We should be consuming the right kinds of stuff. But we have to consume these individuals and these platforms, like John tells his readers, and by extension all Christians, in 1 John 4.1. And I'll read that verse again. Do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's warning his hearers, and we should heed this warning as well. We need to make sure that what we're reading and what we're listening to and what we're digesting and consuming for many of us on a daily basis is truth. We need to make sure that we're going back to this idea that love is faithfulness to God. Are these people promoting faithfulness to God? Are they promoting faithfulness to something else? Are they attempting to syncretize Christianity with something else that is non-Christian in its nature? I'm reminded of the Bereans in the book of Acts. So Luke talks about the Berean church. He says that they were more noble than another group. And why were the Bereans more noble? Because when Paul came and preached the truth to them, they searched the scriptures. These Bereans said, all right, give me an Old Testament. Let's find out if what these guys are saying is true or not. And so Luke said they were noble for making sure that they were not being duped and that they were not being hoodwinked, that what Paul was preaching to them was the truth. And then they consented and believed. So when our favorite Christian, whoever, starts sounding like the world and the world starts listening to them, we can learn from John that that is a red flag. And I have three examples that I would like to share that demonstrate this. Uh, two of them 
are men that I used to listen to on a regular basis and that had a profound impact on me that I now proceed with caution when it comes to the two of them. And another who I didn't follow all that closely, but he was big time. So the first one I want to talk about is that one, and that's Rob Bell. So Rob Bell got big about 10 to 15 years ago. And Rob Bell was young, charismatic, well-spoken, eloquent. He could draw a crowd. He had video series and books that people loved. He seemed to exposit the scriptures and the truth of God so well. He had a big old congregation that he pastored over. And then one day, Bell published a little book called Love Wins, in which Bell rejects and just casts away with a flick of his wrists major core tenets of the Christian faith, including the doctrine of hell and really the doctrine of justification by faith. So in Love Wins, Bell essentially rejects the idea, the Christian notion of hell, that the hell even exists, that there is some sort of eternal place of punishment for those who do not bend the knee to Christ on this side of eternity. And by extension, he, sa- uh, he says that, look, basically he promotes a universalism of salvation, that no matter what you believe, no matter what your background is, that the love of God is so big that it's going to win, that it can even overcome your unbelief, which is a distortion and a complete misunderstanding of God's love and just the whole economy of God and how salvation works. And and this form of universalism isn't even, so there's a, a form of universalism that's dangerous, but it acknowledges that hell exists. It just sees hell as like a furnace that refines precious metals. It sees hell as this place that kind of refines you of the sins that you did in in your life on earth and that you have a chance to repent in hell, which is weird, I understand it, but it's not even that. It's worse than that. It's like there is no hell, you're all good, it doesn't matter what you believe. And if that's true, why did Jesus die? Why bother? Why did God come, why did God send his son to die, the horrible death? All that does is give atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Dawkins, who see God as this horrific monster and this abusive father for sending his son down, all that does, all Rob Bell is doing is feeding what they say about Christianity. So Bell left Orthodox Christianity, just completely left it behind. He started speaking like the world. He basically, he like, he syncretized Christianity with a coexist bumper sticker. The idea that, oh, all roads to God, you get there no matter what, it doesn't matter what you believe or what you say about Christ, you're going to make your way there. It's like a 1960s hippie met Christianity. I'm like, oh yeah, man, love wins, dude. We're all good here. And that's just not the case, and that's not the truth or the reality. And then two others. So there was this movement around the same time, 10 to 15 years ago, called the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. This was when guys like Tim Keller and Piper, even though they're not really young, but them, Kevin DeYoung, Vody Bauckham, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, David Platt, guys like that got big. And Reformed theology kind of made a comeback. It was cool to be a Calvinist. It was cool to be Reformed. And all of these guys, this is when the Gospel Coalition was formed. So all of these platforms and these big-name guys start writing books and making podcasts and doing all sorts of things like that, and they get really big. And, I mean, I was... In my later 20s during this time, so I got caught up in that movement too. I thought these guys were great. I was like, yes, what a breath of fresh air these men are breathing into uh, American Christianity. And then 2016 happened, and then 2020 happened, 
And many of them started saying very different things. So David Platt, for instance, a guy who I just so admired, he had his book Radical. I just thought all these things that he was writing about and all that he was saying, he challenged my Christian faith. I thought, man, this guy gets it. And then David Platt at T4, at the T4G conference a handful of years ago preaches from Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters. Book of Amos, a big section of it, if not all of it, is really about God just taking Israel to task for their lack of justice. They have perverted justice. They're not executing justice. They're, they're committing loads of injustices. And then David Platt preaches from that at T4G a few years ago and says that in order to fulfill this, we need to be advocates of social justice. We need to recognize that the disparities that exist between whites and non-whites is a problem and is rooted in injustice. Without any sort of consideration for any other factor, that would be contrary to that, just links so modern social justice and critical theory with biblical justice and claims in a sweeping motion that this is what God was saying when he said, let justice roll down like waters. And that it means DEI, that it means diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why did David Platt start sounding like a law professor from UC Berkeley after sounding like a godly, thoroughly orthodox Christian preacher. Syncretism here again. He is syncretizing Christianity with modern social justice theory and is ending up sounding like the world and the world is beginning to listen to him and men like him. Super brief primer on critical theory just so you can understand what's going on here. This is an offshoot of Marxism it becomes big in the early 1900s. Critical theorists see Marxism, class warfare, economic struggle, and they want to make it cultural. They want there to be cultural warfare and cultural struggle. They want cultural equality, or at least what they see as cultural equality. So they start their long march through the institutions. They capture American public universities. Critical theory takes over just about every law department in the United States. It makes its way into the rest of the humanities. And eventually, when these people graduate and get big boy and big girl jobs, it makes its way into the culture. And it eventually made its way into Christianity. So critical theory, and there's a whole bunch of critical theories, critical race, critical queer, critical feminist theory, I want to just focus on critical race theory for a minute because it's at the root of men like Platt and Chandler and it's at the root of why they sound like the world. So critical race theory essentially says that there are, there are disparities that exist. Disparities in outcomes, educational outcomes, prison outcomes, economic and social outcomes that exist between whites and racial minorities and that typically it favors the whites even though Indians and Asians actually have superior outcomes to whites. Critical race theorists don't like to talk about that. But they, they look at the disparities that favor whites compared to other groups. And they say the reason that those disparities exist because there's this white dominance, there's this white hegemony in place that is somehow favoring whites and is disfavorable to minorities to the detriment of minorities. That makes its way into the church. That makes its way into the minds and the hearts of men like Platt and Matt Chandler. And so they syncretized that 
with Christianity, and what you end up with is a perversion of justice. It, is, it completely ignores what the Bible has to say in the book of Proverbs about you know, where wealth comes from, where poverty comes from, how to educate your children, how to bring up children in the way they should go, about the folly of seductive women and about men being chaste and abstaining from those kinds of things. And it's a brilliant half-truth because there are disparities that exist. But to automatically leap to an injustice is a leap in logic and doesn't follow from the scriptures. The scriptures do not teach that injustice means there is a difference in outcomes between people. That is far too broad of a brushstroke to make. And when you do that, you, you distort and pervert justice. And you teach Christians that justice is marching with Black Lives Matter. That justice is promoting diversity, equity, and, and inclusion within their corporations and their institutions. And they're led away from the truth of what justice is. Because really the truth of justice is what... God says in Micah 6, 8, you know, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Justice actually is you're a sinner, you deserve eternal punishment, but by the grace of God, through Christ's sacrifice, you can have a new life. Justice is Christ taking that sacrifice for you, the one that you actually deserve to take upon yourself. It totally takes the focus away from the truth and the beauty of the gospel and instead... Focuses it on what? Temporal outcomes. It puts the focus there. Exactly what John was warning about. You're focusing on the temporal outcomes. Your mind and your heart is not set on the things that are eternal. And it takes the mind off of the eternal. And Matt Chandler had a similar thing. He was speaking at MLK 50 about five years ago. And he was talking about his new hiring practices. Matt Chandler is the pastor of Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. And he was for many years, the head of the Acts 29 church planting network. And Matt Chandler said at MLK 50 a handful of years ago that when it comes to hiring, he was working with some sort of a firm to fill the various leadership and pastoral roles within his church planting network and his church network. And he said, and I'll use his words, he said, if you bring me, if you have two candidates, and one is an Anglo 8 and the other is a black 7, give me the black 7. But if it's a black six, don't give me the black six because then that just promotes the tokenism I'm trying to fight against. Well, the black seven, Matt, is also tokenism that you're attempting to fight against as well. You have taken 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, which spell out specifically what elders ought to look like and ought to behave like, and you've just thrown it to the side in the name of diversity for the sake of diversity. Who promotes diversity for the sake of diversity? The world promotes diversity for the sake of diversity, not the word of God. Now, we should not be attempting to stifle diversity. We don't want to swing the pendulum the other way. But swinging the pendulum in the way of the Chandlers and the Platts and the other Christians who have syncretized social justice with Christianity is just as dangerous. And the reason why I decided to spend time equivocating love as faithfulness to God and spending time with the social justice heresy is because I believe it is exactly that. John was dealing with the Gnostic heresy. Paul dealt with the Galatian Judaizer heresy. And I think one of the biggest heresies facing the church today is this perversion of justice, most importantly because it takes our focus off of the gospel, off of the eternal, and sets it on the temporal and lifts the temporal up as the thing rather than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the thing. And it doesn't have to just be Christian celebrities. It's 
hurts worst when it's our friends and our family members. When our friends and our family members start sounding like the world, especially when those friends and family members once claimed the name of Christ, that's when it can become the most difficult to endure. I had multiple friends from my Christian college. Kelsey and I were discussing this just the other day. Multiple friends from our Christian college who once they graduated eventually left the faith. Many of them started down the path of the social justice heresy and eventually ended up leaving the faith and getting in, into other sins such as homosexuality and other kinds of things where they have aban- they abandoned their first love. They abandoned the faith. And then I had another friend of mine, and this is probably the one that hurt most of all, um, Back in the mid-2000s when I was still in California working at a Christian radio station, I had a buddy of mine that worked there. He was a staunch, unflinching Calvinist. I mean, he was Reformed and he loved being Reformed. And at the time, I was not Reformed and I did not love being Reformed whatsoever. And so him and I would have good-natured debates and back and forths. We got along really well. He would make fun of me for being an Arminian. I would make fun of him for being a Calvinist. It was all in good fun. And then in 2020, ironically, when I became Reformed <laughs> and I became a Calvinist, he left the faith. He stayed, he was, I mean, I was already here in Texas. He was still in, in California. He was living in the Sacramento area. And he started marching with Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the summer of 2020. He was one of those guys getting in the faces of police officers, screaming at them. And he abandoned the faith, admitted out loud to me, face-to-face, man-to-man, that he was no longer a Christian. He loved the world. He no longer loved God. He sounded like the world. And the world listened to him. And the love of the Father no longer abides in him. And I pray for him, and I pray for my other friends, and I'm sure many of you have very similar situations with family members and friends that you love dearly. That's why it's so important to heed this advice and to recognize what love is and is not. And primarily, we must remember what love is. And one of the aspects of what love is, is it is faithfulness to God. Our very souls depend on the acceptance of that reality. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you very much for this day. And I think we would all admit that when it comes to love, that we love on many occasions very poorly and that we have been seduced by the things of this world. Lord, keep us safe, keep us firm, keep us in your word, and continue to teach us what love is and what truth is. And may we cling to it, may we cling to the eternal and not to the temporal. Amen.